The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. So every night I look into my video monitor and I look at Jason. And, and you just stare and all. Well, I do that too, but I also <laughs> look and I watch you like, I don't know what you're eating, some kind of snack. You got pickles over there. You got yeah, No, it's not pickles. It's pickled sunflower seeds. Oh, today it's pickled sunflower seeds. Yeah, but but you do that. So today I decided, okay, I'm going to get a little snack and I got myself a little bowl of some peanuts and cashews and M&Ms and I went to start talking and I got I can't talk because I got all these little peanut crumbs in my throat. Well, then I'll say it. Hey, welcome to Beyond Reality <laughs> Radio, everybody out there. And thanks for tuning in tonight. We got a great show planned for tonight. We're going to be talking with Frank uh, Fancino Jr. Actually, Frank became involved in UFO and crop circle uh, research in West Virginia. He's also written uh, some books on the Flatwoods Monster, which uh, is a really creepy, creepy story that happened back in what, 1952, right, Jim? Yeah, 52, and it's it's uh, purported to be the most terrifying alien encounter on record. Um, I'm anxious to hear Frank describe it, tell us why it's so terrifying, as opposed to any of the other ones. I know that the image, and if you if, and I think Slick Eddie's going to throw an image up at some point, uh, a, an artist rendition of what this monster, quote-unquote monster, but it was supposed to be an alien, looks like. And uh, it is a pretty frightening creature. It's not a gray or one of those typical, you know, alien type creatures that, that you would expect to see. No, it's uh, definitely see. weird. It's weird the way it's uh, like shadow type face. And, um, but yeah, so it, it's spooky. And uh, yeah, when everybody sees it, I think they, they'll understand that. Yeah. And Frank uh, wrote uh, the first definitive book on the encounter. Um, and we're going to talk about the book and, and, and what he uncovered. He talked to a lot of the witnesses, many have passed since. Um, because it was in 1952 that it occurred, but it's uh, you know it's close to Roswell time frame. It's close to there's a whole bunch of things that were going on in the U.S. government at that time that Frank will talk about. Um, there was a cover up associated with it, according to him. So it's going to be a pretty interesting conversation. So it could be like a whole Stranger Things thing. I think we might have uh, an <laughs> eleven on our hands. <laughs> When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. Um, all right. So let's go to our guest line and bring in our, our guest of the evening. This is um, Frank Faschino Jr. Frank is the author of the book um, Braxton County Monster. And uh, Frank, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. Hey, man. Thank, uh, it's, a, it's great to have you here. And uh, the story is pretty amazing. And Jason and I spent a good deal of time before the program to uh, chatting about it and kind of bringing ourselves up to speed. But there's so much more to it. But before we get to the story of the uh, Flatwoods Monster itself. Let's talk a little bit about how you were introduced to the world of aliens and UFOs and crop circles and, and that whole story. I kind of stumbled onto it by accident. Uh, I have relatives who live in Braxton County. At the time, my cousin, uh, who since passed away, he lived in Frametown, and I have relatives in Flatwoods right up the street from where the crash site actually uh, took place. And uh, back in the early 90s, I was up there visiting uh, my relatives, and I kind of stumbled across this thing called the Flatwoods Monster. 
at, uh, I originally was working with Colin Andrews because on my cousin's property, he had giant crop circle rings embedded and burned into his property, and he wasn't too happy about that. So what I did is I started photographing, videotaping, and uh, just taking notes of all these occurrences. And at the same time, I started talking to some of the locals in that immediate area about UFOs. And it was a famous case that took place right down the road from my cousin's property. Well, to make a long story short, I was put in touch with Colin Andrews. And at that point, he started taking all of my data and putting it into his masterworks. And about a year later, I received a call from Colin, and he said that the pattern of crop circle rings that were appearing on my cousin's property were also appearing the same exact one style, shape, sizes in England, which was kind of cool, I thought. But from there, that point, I was introduced to the Flatwoods Monster. Somebody had uh, told me about this incident. They said, oh, this isn't the only thing that's been going on up here in these mountains. There was a famous case that happened back in 1952. So I took a ride into Flatwoods for the first time in 1991, and I was greeted by this big, gigantic sign hanging on the side of the road, Welcome to Flatwoods, home of the Green Monster. And from that point forward, my life changed, and I've been doing this thing for almost 25 years now, investigating now, this be, case. Now, before you started um, looking into the Flatwood Monster, before you realized what a story that was, and you were taking pictures and, and investigating the crop circles and the other encounters, had you experienced anything yourself? Had you run into any encounters? Had you seen anything in the sky? Um, what were your personal experiences up until that point? Back uh, when I lived in Connecticut, and there was a lot of sightings up in Connecticut around, I was born in Bridgeport and lived in Stratford, there was uh, a flap that took place up there called the Hudson Valley sightings. Are you familiar with those? I am, just because I reside in Rhode Island, so I have, okay. heard, of, I have heard of those. Yeah, well, I had uh, seen something at one point during that whole Hudson Valley flap in the New Haven area. And okay. it was seen by thousands of people, but that was about it, I mean, you know. And it was, that was uh, a pretty big story back in the day. But besides that, nothing at all. This just kind of like took it completely beyond reality. <laughs> <laughs> no pun intended. Really, yeah, no pun intended. It really didn't. I had no idea I was going to end up spending my life on this on this story, and I probably would do it all over again because if I hadn't looked into this case, it would have been forgotten forever. Well, and, I expect, uh, there hadn't been. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm concerned. I'd... This this case is, just, is was even bigger than Roswell. When it hit oh. the media, it was one of the few stories that actually went outside of the UFO circles. You know what I mean? It, yeah. it was worldwide. It just wasn't something that stuck in the, the little community or the woo woo flying saucers and aliens. This thing went worldwide virtually in about four days. All right, so with the Flatwood Monster also comes the story of uh, a UFO crash, correct? Correct. Okay, so Actually, do you want, lots, do you want of f- cr- lots of crashes that night. Oh, okay. So um, do you want to fill in uh, uh, our listeners on the story behind this uh, UFO crash and the Flatwood Monster? 
Well, the Flatwoods Monster uh, incident took place on September 12, 1952. Now, to give a backstory, what was going on there at that point, 1952 had the most reported UFO sightings to Project Blue Book in its 17 years history. There was actually 1,501 reports in 1952 alone. 303 of those were unknowns which means that the intelligence of Project Blue Book couldn't explain it off as a, a meteor, you know, a flock of seagulls, swamp gas, whatever. And out of those uh, 333 unknowns, 111 of those unknowns took place during June, July, August, and September, which is the, the nickname Summer of the Saucers. So there was a lot of stuff going on in 1952, especially during the summer. We had... Uh, Washington sightings, which I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with, the July 19th and 20th and the 26th and 27th weekends where UFOs flew over Washington and Virginia. So there was a lot of stuff going on at that point. There was actually a third weekend on August 5th that I had researched and wrote about in my book, Shoot Them Down, where star fires were also sent up over Washington after UFOs. A lot of stuff going on. Uh, what I also discovered were uh, orders that were revealed by the United States Air Force. The senior press officer, Monsal Monts, had uh, publicly made it known that orders were given to shoot them down. Uh, so there was freestanding orders by the Air Defense Command and Navy to shoot down flying saucers. So, Frank, a question—a question that's always uh, made me sit back and wonder—is why? Why the initial uh, reaction of shoot these things down if if you see them over us, instead of the reaction of well, let's try to make some sort of contact? Why is it straight to aggression for the human population? Well, back at, at that point, and this this was brought up in research research by Donald Major Donald Kehoe. Kehoe was a pioneer UFO researcher, and in that era, it was pretty scary because the flying saucers were flying through restricted zones, no fly zones. They were seen over uh, uh, missile ranges, atomic uh, plants. You know, places they're not supposed to be, <laughs> and yeah, they were. It's they not seem like to they be blocking that, over these areas where they're not. You know, they really aren't supposed to be there. Restricted yeah. areas. Was they there was there a concern, Frank? Surveilling. I mean, was there a concern that maybe you know when the military gives orders to shoot these things down, was it because they may have suspected this wasn't necessarily alien uh, intervention, but maybe it was the Soviets with some kind of weapon that they didn't. No, recognize or hadn't um, hadn't learned of yet. Well, at that point, they knew they were not Soviet, and that that was another problem that kind of brings both of these together, because during that era uh, and during the Korean War, the United States was anticipating, uh, you know, what was the expression "hide and duck," right. You know, to the kids in school, and they were anticipating an attack from the Soviet Union. And what happened is there were so many UFO sightings over, around, near, off the coast of the United States that intelligence was concerned that if there really was an attack by the Soviet Union, the channels would have been clogged for reporting, and it just would have been a big mess. 
So they knew the difference between Soviet aircraft and these uh, UFOs that were flying over the country. So, and well, why do you th- why do you think that there were so many reports of UFOs in 1952? Well, that's a good question, and we really don't know that. We I mean, really now, now don't, we're at 2016, we and, we, and we're at 2016. Uh, have we had? This many reports in any year that's ever followed 1952? Uh, 1952 had the most reported sightings to Project Blue Book since Blue Book closed. <clears throat> Supposedly, they really haven't been keeping track of it, but there's still as many sightings today. If you just look on the Internet and you look into the MUFON databases, there's a lot of sightings today, but they don't make it publicly known, and there's no real database by the government to report these. But back then, uh, you know, Project Blue Book closed in 1969, but 1952 had the highest reported sightings. There were also a big UFO flap in 1966 and 1973 as well. Okay. Interesting. I wonder if there's any correlation uh, with those years to anything else that, that happened that might have been the reason to really spark these things up. Well, a lot of people just say they, that the ETs thought 1952 was a good year to make contact, and that's why they were flying over Washington in July and August. Now, you had mentioned the D.C. sightings. Tell us how that went, because I know that there were several crafts, or lights, I guess, I don't know if they were ever identified as craft, um, streaking over D.C. and also into Virginia, and I believe toward Ohio, and and there was a lot going on. Okay, on uh, July 19th and 20th, that was the first major weekend where the UFOs flew over Washington. That was Project Blue Book Case 1661, and that actually was deemed an unknown case by intelligence okay and uh this this particular sighting it it involved uh crews of several airliners uh that were seen over the washington area they were tracked on ufos were tracked on radar by andrews air force base air traffic control at washington national airports and uh it was called for the jets to come up and fly over uh washington because it got pretty scary there and there was even a Capital Airlines flight, 807, from D.C. Um, that was in the area. And the pilot had sighted seven objects at close range. And this went on all night back and forth. And at daylight, an F-94 fighter went up. It was a big uh, cluster bunk night. There was a lot of screwy stuff going on one hand. They basically didn't know what the other one was doing. And the following weekend... Uh, basically the same thing went on, except there was a little bit more UFO activity. And that started at 10.30, and this actually involved, uh, that's 10.30 p.m. Washington time, and there was actually four scrambles that night. And the first one was at 11 o'clock, then there was one at midnight, and about 20 of two and one at sunrise. And it was the same thing going on where the, the targets were flying all over the, the area of Washington. They were seen actually over Andrews Air Force Base. They were flying by the air uh, traffic control towers. And it was pretty much a big mess. This caused such a confusion. This hit worldwide headlines within a day. And there was a press conference called on that following Monday. July 29th, and Major General John Sanford, who was the Director of Air Force Intelligence, 
called for this flying saucer press conference at the Pentagon, and it was actually the biggest post-World War II press conference held in Washington. And it was at that point uh, where basically the curtain of silence came down in front of the American public. But it was admitted by uh, the Air Force. Major General Roger Ramey said that there was uh, interceptor planes have raced aloft hundreds of times as a result of reported sightings. And the public wasn't too much aware of this. The local people knew it because they would just see them flying around over their neighborhoods. But nobody had, in at, at that point, had really a grasp or handle on how many uh, UFO chases there actually were, and there was quite a bit of them. And, and you got, you got that, but you got to you got to think, Frank, that in that scenario, they they're flying over DC, over the White House. First off, it has to be terrifying for our U.S. military to think that we're not even able to protect the airspace over. Uh, Washington D.C. Uh, from right. these from these things, but wouldn't you also think that in the same that a UFO flying over this airspace, being able to see, I'm sure our jet fighters or whatever that are out, and everything else that's looking for them, um, it almost would be like an intimidation thing from them to us, trying to intimidate us, letting us know that they could easily be in the in this area. Right, and and there, there was what was called. Uh, Edward Rappelt, who was the head of Project Blue Book in 52, he referred to this in his book quite often. It was one of his catchphrases, how they played games of cat and mouse going back and forth, flying across the sky. And that's what actually was going on. And a key point here that we should roll right into before we get the Flatwoods to get the, your listening audience and sync what, what was going on as far as the armaments. Well, first we had... Uh, the shoot them down orders were, and that one of the headlines I read to you, jets told to shoot down flying discs. Another one out of Seattle was Air Force orders jet pilots to shoot down flying saucers if they refused to land. And this was actually revealed on the 28th, and it appeared the same day in the papers, which were very spotty uh, publications throughout the country as the same day as the press conference. Well, a couple weeks before that, the Air Force had revealed a new jet that had come out. It was the F-94C Starfire. Up until that point, the jets that the Air Force were using had 50 caliber cannons, and the bullets that the United States Navy had were 20-millimeter machine guns. Well, the 4th of July uh, week the Air Force had revealed this F-94C Starfire jet, which was one of the first modern-day warrior jets. It was armed with uh, rockets, and it was a two-seater with a pilot and a radar observer, and the armament consisted of 24 2.75-inch rockets. And this jet actually carried 1,200 pounds of electronic equipment and it had an onboard navigating system to use uh, uh, tracking system. You know, it was basically about 10 steps up from what was being used at that time. And it had an automatic pilot on there. And the, the pilot could basically take his hands off the stick. The tracking system would go onto the UFO or its target, whatever it was going after. And when it would lock onto it, the jet would actually follow it. 
and pick the precise moment to fire these rockets at the target. So basically, the pilot and radar operator were just manning the jet. And this is what we took a step up with at that point. And what's interesting about these rockets is they had a maximum range of uh, six and a half thousand yards and an effective range of three and a half miles. And they could actually travel two and a half thousand feet per second. So quite a difference from the bullets that they were using. And another little sidebar here is that during this time in Korea, we were not using these jets in Korea. We were only using them uh, stateside. And the Air Force always kept its best jets in the United States to protect it from outside assaults. And because in Korea, they were scared if one went down to enemy territory, our technology would have been grabbed by the Russians. Domestically, they kept them in the United States um, to right. pr- protect the homeland. Now, do you think they were protecting the homeland against potential Soviet attack at that point? Or do you think these flying saucer and uh, UFO uh, sightings had something to do with that? Well, that's a, a great point to bring up because the first person who ever said that to me was Stanton Friedman. <laughs> You're the first person in 10 years who brought that point up to me because it was uh, the 4th of July week that the Starfire was released and made it was made public through into the press. Uh, Stanton had mentioned to me years ago, he says, Frank, they may have stepped this up because of the overwhelming amount of UFO sightings. They said they were protecting the country from the Soviet unions, but he seemed to think that it was a hell of a coincidence how they stepped it up and all of a sudden it was released right before the Washington sightings because it was a crescendo. These the sightings were escalating as the year went on, especially during the summer of 52. Well, and I'm sure that they had reason to see in the, Ro- the Roswell incident happened, what, five years prior to this? So I, I would think that that would give them reason to make sure that they they had mm-hmm. things on hand in, a, in our own uh, in our own backyard to make sure that we could protect ourselves. Well, before we get off track here too much, let me throw the other jets by you that were being used. We had uh, um, the United States Air Force F-86 Sabre Dog, and that had 24 rockets, and that was actually situated in the lower body. It was in the belly of the jet and had an elevator, and they would drop down and they would fire out from that lower area. And we had the Starfire C, the F-94 we were talking about. And the United States Navy had the Cutlass. It looked like a flying bat. It was a weird-looking thing. That was the F-7U-3. And it had a belly pod that went on. And that can actually carry 32 rockets. And it had four 20-millimeter cannons as well attached to that. So this is what we had up in the air. And uh, it probably couldn't have come at a better point because... The further we went on into the summer, the the sightings were just escalating. It was actually getting out of hand. All right. So now moving on with that, uh, getting into the actual Flatwood Monster, there was a crash just before this monster, uh, this creature or whatever, w- was seen, correct? Correct. It was actually the craft that this thing came down in. Can you give the details on where the crash happened, when it happened, and, and things things like that? Well, the the main part of the story took place in Flatwoods, West Virginia. Flatwoods is the geographical center point of the state, and it's about uh, 55 or 60 miles 
north uh, west of Charleston, which is the capital. And it is exactly 206 miles west of Washington, D.C., which comes into play. And this is how I was able to figure out what happened that night. What I did is when I started my research years ago, I started pinpointing areas on a map throughout West Virginia where sightings took place and trying to figure out uh, some type of uh, flight path trajectory of where this thing came in from. Well, to make a long story short, there was more than one object. And that was what was driving one of the early investigators who was uh, Ivan T. Sanderson, as well as another West Virginia resident who went on to be quite famous, Gray Barker. These men were in Flatwood shortly after the incident, and they couldn't understand if there was just one craft that went down in Flatwoods. Why were there so many sightings, and why were there so many sightings, at least along the eastern seaboard? Well, that became an obsession with me trying to find out what happened. And what I did is I went outside of West Virginia, and basically it was like concentric circles just moving out away and from from that little town, which was about 300 people at the time. It's about 400 now. But anyways, I kept moving further away from Flatwoods, north, south, east, and west, and I discovered the majority of the sightings were between Flatwoods and the eastern seaboard, uh, mainly around the Washington area. I started using Project Blue Book documents. I got the uh, September 12th uh, data. It took me years to go through these reports and extract all the information out. Then I used several different newspapers. Um, I interviewed witnesses who were still alive back in the early 90s who had actually seen these objects. And for years, I took all this material, put it in a, in a chronological order of time stamps, trajectories, what the shapes of them, the colors of them were, and this took several years. Uh, at that point, I went from a West Virginia map to a map which I call the master map, and you could see that on my website. Um, I have some great pictures of that. In the long run, I have this map that's the size of a wall. And over the years, I kept plotting the points. It's like what you see in these crime shows where the, uh, where all the murders, serial murders take place. They start plotting the points, and they're trying to figure out some type of a pattern. Right. Well, that's what I did, except the map was the size of a wall. It, you know, I had this hanging in uh, the living room and in the den for years trying to figure out what happened. And in the long run, uh, as of now, I was able to establish 116 locations where UFOs were seen over uh, 10 different states along the eastern seaboard. And the sightings took place over 21 consecutive hours. The main portion of the sightings took place within an hour along the eastern seaboard. That's when the crap hit the fan. That was the the hub of it right there. And one of the ships came in damaged over the eastern seaboard, and it was reported in the New York Times, 
and one of the Boston papers is the flame over Washington. It was flying over Washington at certain points, heading west in flames with chunks and pieces falling off of it at treetop level. During September 12th, it was a heat wave, no air conditioning, so the majority of the public was all outside, you know, getting getting cooled off. That's why there were so many sightings and so many reports. If it had happened in the winter, most of the people would have been inside and they would have, wouldn't have noticed, but especially through the Washington area. And this was all reported in Project Blue Book, which was quite amazing. I used the majority of my information right from intelligence. People are driving around in their convertibles. They're walking their dogs. They got their kids in strollers. There's thousands of people in, in that area of Washington, Maryland, and Virginia. They look up into the sky, and they see this thing flying over. Well, it was actually more than one thing. But the main one was this flame over Washington that the New York Times reported. It flew west 206 miles and if you stood on the Capitol and could look like Superman 206 miles west, you would see the Bailey Fisher Farm, which is where the Flatwoods Monster ship touched down. That's what nobody else figured over the years. Another part that comes into play, I actually figured out in the big realm, there was 25 different UFOs seen along the eastern seaboard during that 21 hours, there was a mothership seen later in the night uh, over Delaware that was reported the size of a dirigible, which is basically like the size of uh, the Hindenburg. So I was just going to—I was just going to—yeah, I was just going to ask that question. What <laughs> what determines that it's a mothership? It's the size. It's the actual size. This this thing scared the hell out of people in in uh, the area of Delaware. The thing was massive. The other ones, what I did is I, I broke down the different types of UFOs, and I'm an illustrator. I went to Para College of Art. So what I did for oh, over 10 years, every, every time I saw a different description of a craft, I would do a drawing of it, then I would do an oil painting or an acrylic painting of it, and I would set these paintings up. The house looked like a UFO museum. I had all these UFO paintings hanging on the wall, laying along on the couch on the floor. I had uh, this big map hanging up. You know, And mind you, this took several years, about 15 years to figure out at that point of what was going on. And uh, there was 25 UFOs seen that night. One was the mothership seen over Delaware later at the end of the night, and that was reported in Blue Book as well. That caused a big stink with intelligence. It was about uh, 7 o'clock that night, and this is where my master map came in uh, to be an important part of this whole uh, kind of uh, detective search thing going on. Uh, I was able to figure out working with uh, retired military personnel in this master map that there were three damaged UFOs that came over the eastern seaboard, one after another. Uh, what we were able to do was take this map and connect all the dots, and three of these damaged UFOs came in over the eastern seaboard and all points intersected 90 miles off the coast of the United States directly across from Washington. By reenacting and recreating this whole thing, 
these damaged objects were in the air defense identification zone, which is the no-fly zone where you have to identify your aircraft or you will be shot down. This is the point where all of the UFOs uh, originated. They came in damaged with pieces falling off of them. They were making repeated landings. They were exploding. They were making funky noises. The first object flew in and flew southwest, and it was gunning for Oak Ridge National Laboratory. It actually came across the whole country. It penetrated about 100 miles through the no-fly zone into uh, Oak Ridge National Laboratory. It was actually heading right at that, at that facility. The second object came in shortly after that. It went up in the opposite direction. It went northwest, and it flew over Baltimore at low level, traveled northwest across the United States, and it was flying directly at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Really? The third object came in across the eastern seaboard this was the flame over washington this was the flatwoods monster craft it passed over washington at low level exploding with pieces off of it it was seen by thousands of people as well as the other two when they came across the eastern seaboard it was no big secret that these things were uh, flying over us at low levels and uh when we figured out the timing on what had actually occurred the first object heading towards Oak Ridge and the second one heading towards Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. When the third object came down the middle shortly after, it passed over Washington, D.C., and it was not intercepted. It actually flew over the Capitol. And at that point, when it passed the Capitol area of the restricted zones around Washington, there was 12 UFOs that dropped out of the sky and descended towards Earth over a three-state uh, three area, Virginia, Maryland, and Washington. And thousands of people were looking up in the sky and seeing these things descending. What they actually did is they formed an aerial perimeter like a horseshoe and they protected the damaged craft. When it flew over Washington heading west, these things descended, surrounded it, and they followed it west. When it got over the area into uh, Virginia and Front Royal, it had far surpassed the D.C. area. The things went back up in the sky. The other two that were headed towards the other facilities, Oak Ridge and Wright Pat, they turned and redirected in the opposite direction. This thing, what I just told you there in five minutes, took about 15, 16 years to figure out. So well, It's wild that other... you talk about this because I spent time out at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base dealing with the military out there and doing a lot of stuff. And that was one of the, uh, that was one of the things where... You know, a couple of people who who were there spent a lot of time there. Said it in a joking manner about how now this one building you can, because we we were going into all these different locations and we were told yeah this one building yeah you can't go into it's got it's got subfloors goes under the ground that's where they keep the UFO that we've had for fifty years and now you're saying that this thing flew out towards Wright Patterson Air Force Base so it really makes me sit there and think wow were they being serious when they said it to me so yeah and and the UFOs were flying around for years around all these different. Uh, 
security center of areas. It just wasn't a coincidence. One of these made a beeline for Oak Ridge, and the other one made a beeline for Wright Patton. The third one came over Washington. But basically, uh, they were the first two were putting the pressure on uh, on the Air Force. The third so one. So, in came other words, over. you think that we shot these things while they were in uh, while they were over the Atlantic? The no-fly zone, ninety miles off the coast, because they all came in damaged. Mm-hmm. And to boot, there was a fourth one that came in damaged from the south, from the direction of Florida. And there's a uh, few chapters in my book where there was uh, a missing pilot. And I spent years where uh, F-94 Starfire vanished over the Gulf of Mexico right at the onset when everything hit the fan. This all went on like within an hour, hour and 15 minutes, complete pandemonium. So we have these two objects uh, that were going towards Oak Ridge and Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. They turned... The one that was going towards Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, that actually turned and went north towards the area of Wheeling, Ohio County Airport and nearly collided with a passenger plane. And uh, this this was all heavily documented in Blue Book and the local press. And this is how I was able to figure out the, of what happened. We recreated this whole scenario by using the flight paths. And it was interesting, when I started working on this years ago, Stanton Friedman uh, was reading and talking with me uh, throughout this whole thing. And Stanton found it interesting how the UFOs, once they redirected away from their targets of right path and uh, Washington and Oak Ridge, they started following the flight line paths in between airports. That's why there was nearly a collision. And I could do a 10-hour show just on the flight path trajectories of the UFOs. But it was it's pretty tight what we were able to come up with. They were following the beacons from point to point to point throughout the whole United States for hours, hours on end, from when yeah. this happened around 7 o'clock straight through all night. And then when they were getting into the areas within the mountains, they were flying over the rivers. And that's when Stan brought the point up. He said, Frank, did you realize that they were following the flight paths of the rivers? That's what you do when you're in combat during war. You follow the river so you don't hit mountains and you can fly low and you know you're not going to hit anything. And that's what they were doing once they got inland. But to get back to the whole story of what was going on, uh, were those UFOs descended over the Washington area and they followed the damaged craft west it, it basically like they were uh, protecting a football player running away with the ball. They followed it. That all was right in Project Blue Book. But there yeah. were tons of pages in trying to decipher what happened. And the public had no idea what was going on. This is probably the most documented UFO case in history. Everything well, was out there, man, but nobody ever put it together. So to uh, to uh, go a little forward, this one that did crash in in West Virginia. Now it right. was it was found. It was seen coming in by a couple uh, young boys. Is that correct? Okay. Now we're coming into Flatwoods. Here comes the third yeah. object. Okay. Pass over Washington. It was seen by an aircraft over Front Royal. It was seen. Uh, all the way going into West Virginia, and when it passed into West Virginia, it went to northern Braxton County, 
it actually overshot its target because where it was supposed to land was in Flatwoods. It went north of Braxton County, made a 45-degree angle turn, and I talked to witnesses who actually saw it up in that area. It headed south, and it followed State Route 4. Like I said, it was following the road. It, yeah. Because the mountains like doing, up there doing, are doing almost like a close encounters type. Uh, right, type it was like thing threading the needle, so it wouldn't hit yeah. anything. Well, as it came into the Flatwoods area, it came across this area of a mountain range, and there was a bunch of kids playing football on the elementary school playground. And it was Friday night. It was approximately 7:25 at this point, and the kids playing sandlot. They all look up. The whole neighborhood was out there. You have to remember this is 1952, limited radio, hardly any television. So the yeah. kids were always playing outdoors. They look up and they see this this thing coming across the sky, and it was shaped like an egg. It wasn't a disc. There were discs seen that night throughout the United States, but this thing looked like a gigantic egg. And it was approximately 32 feet long from what I can gather by talking to the witnesses. It came across the mountains and it flew over the area of the school playground. It slowed down, made a 45 degree angle turn and it cut back across the street and it landed up on the mountaintop across the road, which is the Bailey Fisher farm. Now this took about approximately a half an hour from the time it passed Washington till it touched down was close to a half an hour between 25 and 30 minutes. And what's funny about that is the official explanation of what was flown over Washington because it was seen by so many people had to come up with an excuse and they said it was a meteor. Okay. The, so the now famous Washington area sighting, but it took a half an hour to get to West Virginia, yeah. <laughs> which should have taken about six seconds if it was a meteor. Right. Yeah. So now from there, and it came down, uh, there were uh, some, some boys that ended up uh, coming upon the object, heading up there and, and seeing this thing firsthand. A bunch of the kids ran up to the house of Kathleen May. Now, these kids were ranged in ages from five, six years old all the way up to, because some of the kids were on the the sidelines hanging out, just watching, up to like 17, 18-year-old kids. They all ran back up the hill about a mile, and they went to the house of Kathleen May. Kathleen May was the primary witness in this whole case to the Flatwoods Monster Incident. Two of the boys in the group were Freddie, May, and his brother, uh, Eddie. They all, the kids come busting into the house screaming, something landed on the hill up in the back. And the reason they went to the maze, because when you pass her house, that's the access road onto the farm. So that's the main way to get, about the only way to get onto the farm. So they all come screaming and running into the house. There's something up there, and we want to go see it. And at that point, the group gathers. And we had kids uh, from 6 years old to 18 years old, and Kathleen May was 32 years old. Her and her first cousin, Gene, he was the 18-year-old. He was a West Virginia National Guard. They uh, led the party onto the farm that night 
And there was actually um, some dogs that were involved with this. There was a local collie that was owned by somebody in the the neighborhood. And that dog tagged along, and the Mays had a couple dogs. At this point, I'm going to give you you and your listeners a quick uh, layout, a diagram of, of the property to have this thing make sense. There was three parts of the Bailey Fisher farm. The, there was the first field, which was a flat, white, open pasture. Then there was a fence and a gate that separated that pasture from the second pasture. Now, the second pasture had a path on it to the left that went up along the edge of the woods. Down to the right, there was a gigantic gully that sunk down. It was a sloping field. And towards the back of that field, there was uh, a pear orchard. There were a lot of trees back in that area. The third field was close to a mile away. That was the field where the UFO had actually touched down. So we have the flat field, the gully, and the mountaintop in the back. Right Now, it's interesting to note where this thing touched down is the only area where there was a pasture. I saw this from uh, property a couple miles away years ago, a local took me up into the mountains. He said, Frank, look across that mountain range. He says, where do you see an open spot? And I didn't even know where I was because I got turned around driving around those mountains. Sure. And I said, Jack, it's right over there. Look at it. And it looked, what it looked like was a big bald spot on a guy's head. He yeah. said, that's where the craft touched down. So how so many people knew where it was going? How many people uh, gathered <clears throat> and started up the uh, through the fields or to check this thing it, out? Yeah. We had Mrs. May and seven boys, uh, a big collie, and two dogs. So they, Mrs. May and Lemon, grabbed their flashlights because they knew by the time they got up there, it was it was getting close to dark, and they didn't want to be stuck out a mile in the back of the woods. So they brought their flashlights. They're walking across the field, and May and Lemon basically led the path the whole way up. They all walked across, wagon trained across the first field. They came to the first fence. It was a big cattle fence and steel fence. They opened it up. They all passed through and they closed the gate behind them. Now they're starting to walk up what was called the wagon path. Now, this is the dirt trail. The sloping pasture is down to the right. The woods are on to the left. At this point, it's starting to get a little dark. They're walking up this inclination, (coughs) excuse me, and they notice this sulfur-type smell that's coming down the path, and there's like a a low-rolling fog, and the dog darts ahead. This big collie shoots up. Now there's a swag that bends to the left, then it goes straight they uh, start walking a little bit further in and it's starting to get a little bit heavier and it's coming from the area up ahead to the left. Uh, Half of the group gets up to this area where there's another fence and what this was was a fence that had pillar to post. There were big slats of woods nailed across. At that point, Mrs. May, Lemon, and three of the other boys, the older boys, they climbed across this fence. In the meantime, the collie had disappeared in front of them, and it let up a racket and started barking its ass off and carrying on. 
it turned around and ran back down the hill, jumped over the gate, and went back down to the house. Now, in the meantime, we have the other boys are at the tail end with their dogs. They hadn't got over the fence yet. Mrs. May is walking with Lemon Nunley and the, her other son, Ronnie Shaver. And as they start getting up to the area where they see this, uh, it's like a folks, uh, uh, fog smoke. They okay. look up to the left, and it's coming from the area of this gigantic oak tree set about four feet off to the left. All right. So, but let's just uh, because we only have so much time here. So uh, the fact of the matter is, they get to they get to the craft, uh, correct? They, do they? Is this? They didn't get to the craft. The craft was way set out in the back in the third field. Okay. All right. So they never okay. made it to the craft. Did they? Run they into never the... made it. That's where they were looking. What had happened while they were going up there? The craft had moved and went into the gully of the second field because it was glowing up on top. It was so obvious. It actually moved and it set down into the second field. And not too many of them had really noticed it. It was dark in that section, but they saw something flashing. Well, they're walking up to the the tree where this smoke is billowing out now. And I had uh, interviewed most of these witnesses, but the main witness was Kathleen May. She started walking towards the tree where all this smoke was billowing out. And she told me that she heard this noise that was like a low uh, rhythmic thumping noise, like a drum. And she said she heard this sound that sounded like frying bacon, sizzling and grease in a pan. She says, and it was very loud. As she started walking towards the tree, the rest are following her. Lemon was standing to the right, and they look up to the left, and about 10 feet up in the air by this 100-foot-plus uh, oak tree, they saw two eyes. They thought it was a possum or something sitting up on the branch because it was way the hell up there, and it was set back about four to five feet. And they're looking up at this thing, and they didn't know what it was. They simultaneously clicked their flashlights on and hit the head of this thing, and it wasn't an animal in a tree. That's what the Flatwoods monster was. And it was approximately between 10 and 12 foot tall, and it was a, a metallic craft. It okay. wasn't wearing a dress. It was actually a small machine. But right now we are talking with Frank Fescino, Jr., about uh, the uh, Flatwoods monster. Now, Frank, w before we went to break, I had brought up uh, in some of these images when you're looking online, this the Flatwoods monster seems to uh, have a, a similar like hands and shape to what you see, what you saw in the movie Independence Day. Well, the big misconception about the monster uh, all came about was after this, this sighting occurred, one week later, Mrs. May, Jean Lemon, the other witness, they were the two closest to the monster. Mrs. May told me she was probably 8 to 10 feet away from this thing and basically came out right on top of them because they didn't see it because it was into the left of the tree when it came around. Lemon fell over. He It scared the hell out of him. The boys picked him up and ran back and to show how scared Kathleen was. She told me she actually jumped between three and four feet and cleared that wooden fence 
and she said she passed most of the kids on the way back. Okay. One week later, uh, May Lemon and the primary reporter, Ailey Stewart Jr. from the Braxton Democrat, he was actually the first Johnny on the spot who went up to Flatwoods that night when all the kids and Mrs. May got back down to the house. He told me it was absolute pandemonium. The reason he went into the house was he was the representative because the state police were running around West Virginia looking for things that were crashing all over the state. So he made an appearance on the show We the People with May and Lemon. A sketch artist sat down with May and Lemon shortly before the show, and he had this big three-by-four-foot piece of paper. And he was asking them their descriptions, and that's where he incorrectly drew the monster. That's why this whole thing turned into a screwy mess was because of one artist who botched up the illustration. He okay. drew this thing wearing a, a cloaked hood with a garment, wearing like a dress, which actually, uh, it didn't look like that. The general overall profile of it was similar, but the arms and claws that the artist portrayed were actually some type of antenna devices that were coming off the shoulder. It didn't have a pointed hood. That hood was actually a metallic helmet with a head set inside, and it was an inner helmet. Freddie May, one of the witnesses, told me it was like kind of looking at a pilot sitting in the cockpit. This helmet had a, some type of a glass barrier in front of it, and it flared out like a rocket <clears throat> at the bottom. And there were pipes coming around the lower portion of this uh it actually was like a small shuttlecraft that came out of the craft that touched down now fr- and frank when i saw the um what are considered to be the images or the or the artist interpretations of this particular uh creature and uh some of the descriptions that you even provided here i immediately think mothman well the mothman uh was a big thing that had wings this thing was a metallic craft right i know but the the eyes the owl shape appearance a lot of that stuff and you're telling me now that that some of that description was inaccurate and it was misportrayed by an artist but either way right. my i when i first saw the images when i was doing a little research on this i immediately mm-hmm. thought this thing is very very similar to the mothman and you know they, it maybe it did have wings underneath the metallic you know, exoskeleton or whatever it was. So, um, and and the and the Mothman sightings weren't too far away from there. Yeah, yeah, they were in 1966. That was West. Uh, yeah, also West in West Virginia. Area. Also right, in West Virginia. Right. So that's just I just something that that struck me as particularly curious based on on what you've been talking about. Well, uh, I actually sat down with the witnesses. And I wanted to get to the bottom of this. And I sat down and did police-style renderings. I was at Mrs. May's home. I was at Freddie May's home. I talked to different witnesses. But it was when I actually sat down at the kitchen table with Freddie and I sat there with Mrs. May. And I said, what did this thing look like? And they said, it didn't look like the drawing. The lower portion, uh, Mrs. May was trying to describe pipes going around the lower uh, circumference of the where it flared out and she likened it uh 
you know, you have to figure 1952 Central West Virginia, not a lot was going on. She likened the pipes to the pleats uh, of drapes, how they rolled around. I'm actually sitting here looking at the window. And that's what she said it looked like. Well, the artist took that interpretation literally, and he put a dress on it and made it look like it was wearing drapes. It was actually pipes. Freddie told me the pipes were about as thick as a fireman's hose, and he held his arm out in front, and he said the pipes were about that thick. He said the bottom portion of this craft was about four feet, and it tapered up, and it was about three foot at the shoulders. And the smell and the fog smoke that was coming out was actually part of the propulsion system that lifted this thing up because it floated and hovered. And that's how that whole thing all tied together. So with with this with them running across this monster, um, what happened to the? Did the monster just? Uh, did this creature just disappear? Did they lose track of it? Because I know there's also reports that a bunch of the residents got sick after after their run in with this thing. So um, right. Go ahead. Well, when this thing landed out in the field, it made an impression, and. Later on, when they went up there that night with a posse and Stuart went up there, there was actually a path about four foot wide, which was the width of the the Flatwoods Monster, the base, the foot of it. And it was leading from the through the field across the pasture and across the the area where where there was dirt and it blew rocks over and that's where it settled after it was seen it basically followed and there was a parallel path going back to the craft like footprints going up and then going back so there was trace evidence mainly so what what do you believe happened to the craft the monster was it was it uh, taken by the by the u.s government and and then we we i need to know uh, i'm hearing all these well I, i read up on this stuff with all these people who became ill after running into this creature so let's start off quickly with what happened what do you believe happened to the craft and and this creature well what I was able to do by using the uh, local newspapers, I went back into the archives in Braxton County and I was able to dig out uh, the information and figure out the flight paths like I did with my master map. Within each one of those 10 states, I had smaller maps, yep. you know, because of, you know, the area of, of Flatwoods is so small in Braxton County. So then I pulled those maps out, laid them out. And I used local newspaper accounts, and Ivan T. Sanderson, who was one of the original investigators, and Gray Barker, who had done interviews, I had some of their original notes, what they had written about, and I was able to plot the points of what had happened. And after the craft had touched down, the sighting occurred, the so-called monster went back to the craft and it lifted off and it was actually seen by some of the locals and it flew along the elk river and it landed in frame town about 17 miles away and that's where another monster sighting occurred the following night and the description was of a reptilian because when it was seen by the witnesses it was seen in the hovercraft except the portion from the waist to the shoulders and the helmets were removed and this was the george natowski incident and that was okay. the frame town monster all so right this so what thing was actually tracked into the next town okay so what ended up what was the sickness that uh the people seemed to be coming down with though 
it, they inhaled that uh, that gas, which back then, uh, Ailey Stewart Jr. was in the Air Force, and he likened it to gas. He was the first one up onto the spot with Mrs. May's father and the posse. They were all armed with shotguns and handguns. When they went up there, the gas had settled, and Stewart, being in the Air Force, knew. So he got down on his belly, and he told me he smelled the ground, and he could still smell that sulfur-sickening odor that was in the area. Uh, the dog that ran back to the house, the collie, that was found dead on a front porch uh, the following morning. And Mrs. May's boys and some of the other kids, they were sick and throwing up. Uh, okay. The lemon kid, he was vomiting basically all night. And Mrs. May told me that shortly thereafter, uh, Freddie, who was the her younger son, who I work pretty close with, he had big brown spots appearing all over his body. And the kids were sick, and they had to stay out of school for about a week. Oh, so wow. the kids, whatever it was that they inhaled, you know, did a job on them. Yeah. Been talking with Frank Vicino Jr. Uh, for the course of the whole program. And, uh, Frank, I think we might have to schedule a part two to this because we just got to the monster. And the whole show was going to be about the monster, but there was so much lead-in that we really didn't have a chance to talk much about the monster. But Let me just say you have the most detailed reports I've ever, ever heard. Yeah, you've, clear, you've clearly <laughs> done you. your research, Frank. You've clearly done your research and and, uh, and have a lot of it uh, to talk about. So um, where can people get the book, The Braxton County Monster? Well, right now, guys, my website is temporarily down, which is flatwoodsmonster.com. Okay. But I have a sister site that's Paratopiary, that's P-A-R-A-T-O-P-I-A-R-Y, paratopiary.blogspot.com. All right, Slick, and, make sure uh, you write that down. You can get the book on there. Yeah, it's, Slick, we're going to have our producer write that down so we can share it on our Facebook page and stuff. But Jason did have one one quick question that he wanted to ask, because yes. did any of these people that experienced <clears throat> the sighting and became sick afterward, were there any long-term health effects with any of these folks? A lot of them had cancer. No, that's okay, what, that, exactly that was actually, that's yeah. what I was saying no to way of, of, of really saying that it happened with the monster, but it's just coincidence, you know, I don't know that now, most of them. Died. Are you working on it? I tried it? getting the original documentation from the doctor. I even went that far. His name was Bernard Hutchinson. He took care of the May boys. Yeah. But, you know, that's that's long gone. We'll never really know for sure, but it's a possibility. Any other projects in the works for you? Um, I am was videotaped uh, for the movie 701, the movie, which is a UFO docudrama, which is going to be uh, coming out shortly. It's in post-production, and it's uh, 701 was the amount of unknown cases, and it's going to be featuring the Flatwoods Monster. Oh, and nice. That's going to be one of the focuses of it, and uh, that's that's on tap for coming up next, guys. And but I know you've time, done. I know you've done some uh, appearances and, and made had given some talks. You got anything like that scheduled? Uh, nothing right now, guys. Just doing a lot of radio shows. <laughs> like yeah, I this. travel for about eight, nine years doing the circuit and right. been all over the country, and now it's a lot easier for me. I'm getting old and tired out, <laughs> so it's a lot easier to sit here doing this. Yeah, well, we The appre- mountains took a toll on me. <laughs> yeah, I bet. We appreciate you coming on, and we'll, we will bring you back for part two. We can get a little bit more into the monster at some point. But then again, uh, we are, we're glad you're here, and uh, thanks for joining us. 
Thank you, man. It was a great interview. Thank All you. All right, thank you. Thank Frank Fraschino, Jr. Uh, the book is The Braxton County Monster. And uh, I know Slick Eddie's writing down the websites because I can't remember exactly what it was, but um, he'll post that so that if anybody wants to uh, get more information about it, they can. Paratopia. Uh, yeah. Paratopia. Uh, yeah. Something like but, that. Guys, yeah. thank you for uh, tuning in tonight. I think it was an interesting show. It took us the whole show to get to the monster. But, um, you know, next time <laughs> maybe we'll, we'll, call, we'll start <laughs> there, I guess. You guys, you, you've been listening to Jason and JV on Beyond Reality Radio. We appreciate the support, and we'll catch you all tomorrow night. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.